0: Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy! Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyber Labs. Today we are lucky enough to have Professor Darwin Caldwell with us. And Darwin is Deputy Scientific Director of the Italian Institute of Technology and director of the department of advanced robotics there so his research is pretty fascinating it it revolves around humanoids collaborative robots exoskeletons and robotics to perform essentially human actions so uh, i'm definitely curious to hear more and darwin is quite a prolific author he's uh, co-authored over 450 papers not sure how he has time to do all that and has uh, 19 uh, patents so he stays quite busy. And he received his bachelor's and PhD in robotics from the University of Hull in 1986 to 1990. So let's jump right in to learn more about Darwin and his research. So Darwin, thanks for joining us today.
1: Uh, It's a pleasure to be here.
0: And so, yeah, before we talk about your current research, can you just give us a little overview on your background?
1: Okay, well, um, as you actually said, my my background is uh, is robotics. I I actually did... uh, um undergraduate degree in uh, what's called electronic control and robot engineering so I actually did robotics at my undergraduate course. Um, at the time I actually did that it was in in the UK University of Hull. it was the it was the only robotics course in the country and, and in fact it was the only course for, for many many years but uh, I was always interested in the possibility of doing robotics. Um, at the end of that time um, one of my supervisors um, asked me, about doing a PhD, and he suggested a few topics. And they were interesting, but they weren't exactly what I wanted to do. So I went away and I found some funding for myself and came back and told him I I wanted to do it. I was interested in doing a PhD, but I wanted to work on a specific area. He was happy with that, I was happy. And so that's where the PhD came from. Um, So I did my undergraduate, graduated in 86, and my PhD finished in 89.
0: What was your uh, dissertation on?
1: It was on polymeric actuators. Um, uh, That's sort of the background to that. Uh, When I was under uh, in my undergraduate project I worked a lot on tactile sensing. Um, And I was very fascinated by hands and by gripping. Um, And during the summer when I was uh, uh, thinking about my PhD, I was actually actually in the US in Santa Cruz at the time. And uh, I was thinking about building a robot hand. And as I thought about that, I thought, no, but the first thing you've got to do is find something to drive out the muscle that you have in your forearm, etc. Uh, so uh, I, I started considering, well, how would we make something that was like human muscle? Um, and the way to do that, I read a lot that went away, thought, yeah, this is interesting. started reading a lot of chemistry um, uh-huh. about mechano, uh, mechanochemical actuators. Uh, or chemomechanical, different, they call it. one time they call it mechanochemical, sometimes they call it chemomechanical. Um, and so I, I, started working on these and started looking at polymers and using, um, uh, different type of chemicals to, to, uh, actuate the sensations and create things that were pseudo-muscular. Um, you know, like like a human muscle. Uh, And so that's what my PhD ended up being, a little bit of chemistry and a little bit of electronics and a little bit of, and it it was a sort of chemistry background because I wanted to create muscle.
0: So were you, growing up, were you kind of a curious kid? I mean, were you interested in robotics uh, growing up, like before college?
1: Um, I was always interested in science. Uh I, I have a, a vague memory, and my mother tells me it's correct. Um, <laughs> but when, when, I was about, when I was about five, I'd watched the film. I actually remember the film. And I actually saw it. It's, it's, a, it's a very old film, very old black-and-white film with that Alex Guinness in it called The Man in the White Suit. And he developed this new um, cloth that was self-cleaning. Uh, and at the end of the film, I took mother, my mother. Uh, this was about five, six five, six, seven. Can I be a scientist? And she went, yeah, if you want to be. <laughs> um, and so it was right from that particular time. And then, you know, as I grew up, I was one of these children that was always asking why. Um, um, it probably drove my parents' not. Why would I do this? Why would I do that? I started going into the family at the Christmas time. My aunts, when they would uh, get me presents, would buy me books about how things work. So uh, I, I was all, you know, things like, you know, scientific processes. So not, not, not novels. A book about how something would actually work. Um, So I guess it it was always there. This wanted to know how things happen. So the the engineering background, yeah, and the the interest in science.
0: Interesting. Okay, and and so after your PhD, can you tell us uh, what you did after that?
1: Okay, after my PhD, um, a job came up over at the University of Salford, um, which is in Manchester, north of England. Um, And at, at that particular time, the UK was actually quite Innovative, they just, um, the UK government had um, funded a National Advanced Robotics Research Centre, and that was on the campus at Salford. So that was the reason I went to, to huh. Salford. Um, this was set up led by um, a guy, Professor John Gray, who I still know. Um, and This was set up, you know, the, the late 80s, I think he did this, and I went there in the early 90s. Um, and so I went, went to Salford at that, that particular time because they they were very pioneering. In the work that they were going to be doing in 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 robotics, you know, it, it was the leading place in the UK. And to be perfectly honest, at that time, it's probably one of the leading places in the world. As, as the UK was very much at the forefront at that time. It lost its way a little bit afterwards, but at that time, it was very much at the forefront. Huh.
0: Interesting. Okay. And and what was the? I mean, maybe this is you built it um, in your undergrad. But what was what was the first robot that you ever created?
1: <sighs> the difficult lives. My
0: first robot, the first
1: work I did on robotics, was developing tactile sensors. So it wasn't really a robot; True. it was like building a fingertip. Um, and so I, I did that as an undergraduate. That was a fingertip; it, it would feel touch. Um, it could feel temperature. If you touched an object, you were able to tell whether the object was hot or cold. And, and wow. using that, you were able to identify what the the, the object would do, and you feel textures. And so it was a tactile sensor. That was the first one. Uh, and then the next one was using the the polymeric muscles to actually drive uh, very primitive grippers. But it mostly it was on the side of building the the actual um, the, the drive, the muscle
0: part of the of the robot. Interesting. Is it seems like you're uh, definitely ahead. I mean, obviously you're ahead of the kind of the robotics. Uh, um, well, I don't know if revolution is the right word right now, but the trend. <laughs> you got, I, I mean, was there a lot of a um, Robotics, uh, you know, education and um, coursework in the United States or anywhere else in the world at that time. It, it,
1: it was it was just beginning. Okay. Um, I mean, the, the the ideas for robotics um been places um Carnegie Mellon during my early years, Carnegie yeah. Mellon was really the place that okay. was, was leading the robotics things and been being set up. Um, Carnegie Mellon was, was one of the pioneers. Um, there was obviously work in in Japan as well. Um. So it it was something that was actually really it was starting to take off and people could see that it had had potential. But there was there was he was unsure because well it was robotics part of manufacturing or was robotics something completely different. And if you watched, uh, if you looked at the normal industry, what you'd see was robots were just extensions of machine tools. But at the same time, you had you even go back to fiction, you know, the Abimus, um, iRobot, etc. You have the concept that robots would be able to do many, many other things. So at that particular time, it, it was a little unclear exactly what it was going to do. Um, it could just end up as a factory thing. Um, that was probably never going to be the case. But, uh, the, the National Advanced Robotics Center in the UK, they were starting to look for a lot of new, into a lot of new areas things like virtual reality, which no one had heard about. Virtual reality came along as part of, um, uh, it got incorporated into a lot of robotics. And so that took gave a, a little bit of spin off. And um, people were working in new types of, of systems. So it, it was actually very interesting because there was still a lot of directions. There was no it, there was no clarity as to where robot was going, but there was a lot of potential to see what thing, things what might happen. Mm,
0: interesting. And... Uh... And how how did you decide to kind of focus on more of the human element, um, you know, supplementing human motion or or simulating human motion? What why did that interest you versus like you know manufacturing robots?
1: Well, over the years, we did actually I, I did actually do quite a lot of manufacturing. We did okay. a lot of for a period, we did a lot of work on um, uh, uh, robots for the food industry, but the manufacturing. I, the area we worked on was robotic research. Um, and so my particular fascination was was from my PhD with the, the actuation system. So I worked with the polymers, and, and the polymers were interesting, but they weren't ever going to give me the power that I actually wanted. They weren't going to work in the same way as human muscle. But I like the fact that they were, they were soft, they had this compliance. Um, the way humans move is completely different from the way robots, particularly at that time, would actually move robots were behind big fences people interact with each other um and so i started uh after my phd i started looking at developing different types of actuators and we started looking at pneumatic actuators and pneumatics is a very it's traditionally a very simple type of of drive system but if you build them into a, a muscle we created these pneumatic muscle actuators what you could actually do is you could get extremely high power very very lightweight and you could actually control them and they could be relatively soft so they could be they could have characteristics that were a little bit like human muscle, as I'd been aiming for. Um, and at, at that particular time, the fact that they were compliant, they were soft. Um, nobody liked because what they wanted were big pieces of metal that went to very accurately to a position in space. That's what the factory robots were looking for. But if robots were going to actually interact with people, we couldn't have that. What we needed were robots that were lighter, that were softer, that were able to physically interact. And so this was actually before the times of physical human-robot interaction. You didn't interact with a robot in those days. But I was actually quite interested in building compliant robots, softer robots that could were safer, closer to, closer to people. So I worked on, on these pneumatic muscle actuators at that particular time. Still working on tactile sensors, and then we just use because we have the actuators, we have to prove what they were do. And building robot arms, building walking robots, building quadrupeds, because pneumatics is usually a very poor way to control things, and because humanoids are a very difficult thing to control, if you could use pneumatics to control a humanoid, you would you would prove that it was actually a, a technology that was usable.
0: Huh, interesting. And and I guess before we get too far, you mentioned actuators a few times. Can you just uh, tell everyone uh, what an actuator does?
1: Okay, an actuator is basically, in biological terms, is muscle. It's it's what provides the drive for humans or for machines. So in most robots, historically, you used electric motors. Uh, sometimes you would use hydraulics. Very occasionally, you would use Pneumatics, um, but basically, what it is, it, it's it's the the engine that drives it. Um, so in a car, the car engine is the is the actuator. You don't normally call it that. But that, that's it. So the actuator is essentially what provides the motion.
0: Great, thank you. yeah, that's that's helpful. Thank you. And and so let's uh, let's talk about some. You kind of mentioned some of the your interests, but you know some of your current projects. And I know you have a lot going on. And um, so often I I know kind of where to start with some of my interview but with you <laughs> i have a yeah. you have a lot so you know can you maybe give an overview on some of the projects you're working on and and then maybe we could dive into like one or two projects that are especially interesting okay. to you
1: okay well um uh, in 2006 um i left the uk and moved Italy to work at the um institute italiana the technology Institute of Technology because my Italian is not very good. Uh-huh. Um, and and uh, at, that, at that particular time, it, I actually was just being said, I was completely new. There was nothing there. Um, really? On the day it opened, yes, I was the second employee. There was oh Roberto Cingolani, the at the oh. Institute, and they appointed four directors on the first day, and that, that was the first four people. Huh. Now there's, I think 1,500 people.
0: Oh, my IT. goodness. Oh, I didn't um, know about that. I, that's a good, uh, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I should have asked yeah. about that. <laughs>
1: um, I don't and that particular day, my, the, the, the robotics department, which I, I'm uh, in charge now, has about. Uh, it depends how you count it on it, which day, but between about 130, 150 people working on different projects. So we worked in a lot of lot of different areas. But you, you mentioned there was a lot of papers, but there's a lot of papers because there's a lot of people. Yeah. Um. I, you know, it's not. I, this is the work of many people, not right. just myself. <laughs> um, um. So one of the primary areas we worked in was um. humanoids. All types of humanoids. Developing the hardware for humanoids, stuff for humanoids grasping. But we developed various humanoid robots. Um. Initially, before coming to IIT, we'd worked on a humanoid robot called ICUB. After we came to IIT, we developed a number of new robots. So we developed a robot called Coman. Coman was a compliance humanoid. That's where the Coman comes from. Um, this was a very, this is a small robot about a meter tall. Um, but it was designed to be soft. So it had, it, although it was powered by electric motors, it was designed to have the same characteristics as the as the pneumatics that I'd worked well on 10, 15 years before that. Um, So we we built a Coman, we built Walkman. Walkman's a very large robot that competed in the DARPA challenge. So it's nearly two metres tall, 130 kilos. Um, So that's the humanoid side. We also developed um, quadruped robots. Um, And the sort of inspiration for that came uh one of the first PhD students when I went to to IIT um, at Yosemini. Uh, he was interested in doing some work on hydraulics I was interested in doing hydraulics because i would never worked on it before Boston Dynamics had done their big dog um and so we decided that we would try to do some hydraulics and see what we got to um and over a number of years we developed a, a lot of um, hydraulic platforms um high q is the is the best known hydraulic Q is hydraulic quadruped um and we have high q2 which is an update of that so we have a whole area which is in um in Large animals, sort of large dogs, small um, horse or goat, or that type of side, sort nice of mm-hmm. quadrupeds. But again, although I hydraulic, the compliance, this this interact, this idea of having things which are, are able to softly interact is, is part of uh, what goes on. And with hydraulics, normally you can't do that, but we can We can control our hydraulics in a soft way. Um, we merged those two. New project that's coming on, we merged those two, so we're creating centaur robots with four legs, two arms, like a centaur. Uh, we do work on uh, medical robotics. Um, in the past, when I, in my previous times, um, we've worked on medical robotics. But when we came to IIT, there was an opportunity to expand that. So we, we now work on surgical robotics. Um, big area we work on is um, throat surgery. Um, so mm-hmm. we work on developing um, hardware tools that, that can augment the performance of the, of the surgeon. So uh, when the surgeon's doing something, we can actually add tools in there or software in there. That, that hopefully will allow them to perform more effectively. Um, and then we build that into things like um, microinjection, injection um, So you can have systems to, to, to inject um, blastocysts' little embryonic eggs. So when they're doing tests in um, biology or neuroscience, they may want, want to mix on modifications or even things like in vitro. Um, and so you inject them. But when a human does it, um, the success rate is, even after two years, the success rate is not so high. But when you actually put the machine in um, and tell the operator or make it autonomous, you could you could inc- improve the performance rate. Um, and we were able to inject things like um, neurons, brain cells, uh, which was impossible at that time. Uh, we then do things on learning systems, so learning by demonstration. We have a humanoid robot. How do we program? They're very difficult to program. Well, people aren't programmed. So what you actually do is you watch somebody else and just copy them. So you learn by demonstration. Um, and so we were very interested in, in this area of, of learning by demonstration. Uh, and we had, from the Medical, we worked in um, rehabilitation robotics. So again, one of the first PhD students uh, at IIT, um, Judy Stalia, was working on a mechanism to create a, a parallel robot. Um, it was, it was you know, a purely academic project at the time. Um, and we created this with, again, compliant actuation. Um, it was very nice from that very nice work with publications. Uh, seven, eight years on from that, Julie's company has just um, just uh, gone as a uh, startup with um, 10 million of financing from um, some entrepreneurs in Italy. So, you know, projects that start out as a PhD can alter, also turn into businesses. Um, so that that was a project that, that uh, started in 2006 and just this year, um, two or three months ago, they established the company. Huh. Um so I, 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 we have our, we do industrial automation. So you said about the industrial, What we do is work in industrial automation. So the, the advanced robotics that we actually do. Quite often, what we'll do is people will come along. They'll look at our robots and they say, "Yeah, we don't we don't need a humanoid robot." And we go, "Of course, you don't need a humanoid robot. But if you need something, a solution to a problem, we can we can provide solutions to your problems because that's what we do. We we solve problems. We solve problems with Mechanisms with software, with hardware, with electronics, etc. But it's just solving problems. um And so, if we can build a humanoid, maybe we can solve your problems hmm.
0: Interesting. And is so that was a nice, helpful overview. Is there any project that uh, you're especially excited about, or interested in? I'm sure all of them. Uh, I mean, like the learning systems is pretty interesting. All right, you know that's sounds like a tough problem to crack. And of course, well, everything you're doing. Is tough. Um, uh, but I'm curious, you know, what the learning systems and then uh, even the humanoids and kind of a where is state of the art with uh, humanoids right now? Um,
1: well, what we actually, what we try to do is we try to essentially merge the humanoids in the learning systems. Um, and so what we actually have is that the people that are working in the learning systems are essentially learning to train the humanoids. So sometimes we teleoperate these systems. And one of the areas we look at is is advanced teleoperation exoskeleton. Um, So sometimes if if the machine is not going to be intelligent enough or the area you're working is so dangerous, you dare not allow it to be autonomous. You teleoperate it. The human controls it. Um, But what you want is something which is natural. Um, And most teleoperation systems are difficult to use. They take a lot of training um, and even then they're relatively slow. So we work on advanced teleoperation, but we're now looking at this area, what we call, um, uh, teleoperation by learning. So instead of demonstrating directly on the robot, we demonstrate through teleoperation. So we might remotely tell the robot what to do and it would then learn, yeah. um, how to do it. And if it's it a little wrong, we would say, no, no. Yeah. So if you, if you show somebody how to do a job and they do it a little bit wrong, you would tell them, no, no, a little bit more to the left. And the next time, they do it a little bit more to the left. And they say, yeah, no, not quite so fast. Just at the end, slow down a little bit, right? It's very difficult to communicate ver- that verbal information to a robot. But if you were to grab the person's hand as they did that and to actually guide them through it and to do it two or three times, they would learn what you were actually doing. And if you did it the next time, it was a little bit wrong, you say, no, you push their hand. i will to them a little bit to the left. Push the hand a little bit to the left. And they go, okay, I, I understand <laughs> what you're saying. So this is the idea with with learning by demonstration. A person does it, and the robot sees, and they can see either by using cameras or there may be sensors on the person. So they sense what the person's doing, and they copy it. And the first time it will be mostly right, but it will be a little bit wrong. And the second time it will improve, and the third time, and after you've done it three or four times, you can actually improve it. Um, We have a a, a, a video that one of the guys had done on 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 the internet where he teaches a robot To toss a pancake, um, it's actually a cardboard pancake. But (laughs) what he does is he grabs the wrist of the the wrist of the robot and he flicks it, and catches it, and he flicks it, and he catches it, and you then can watch the video. And over the next 50 trials, the robot throws the pancake onto the floor. The robot throws the pancake on top of it. But after 50 trials, it's successfully flipping. So, in the first instance, it learns. The person grabs the wrist and shows it the flip motion, and then you teach it, well, you, you, what you have is it's called reinforcement learning. But when, when, it, when the robot gets a good solution, it copies it and modifies it a little bit. And it continues to refine that until, ultimately, it manages to toss a pancake, which would be impossible, not possible, it would be extremely difficult to program the robot to do that. But in actual fact, it took the robot about 40 trials. So each trial, let's say, takes two minutes. So in about a, the morning, you can teach
0: a robot how to toss a pancake. Hmm. And can you uh, kind of walk us through more from the technical standpoint how that works? You know, from the algorithms to kind of the sensors to the vision systems, and then how uh, you know how does how do those updates get uh, adapted back into kind, of, kind of the algorithm to so that the robot learns.
1: Okay, uh, it, it, it's it's. It's very dependent on the, on the context.
0: Yeah, um, the pancake flipping, one, it, it, it if we have a, <laughs> or something like that. Uh, um, I, or if I think of one of the, we, we have one we do
1: with a humanoid robot where the humanoid um, has a table okay. um, and there's a drill on it, but the drill the is the wrong way around. So you need to pick it up and manoeuvre it. So for a person, that's trivial. Just, if the drill is on its side, you just reach out, grasp it, and turn it onto turn it upright. But humanoid robot the first thing you have to do is identify in all of the all of the materials which are around on the table. So you make it a difficult environment, you put other things on the table. You say where is the drill? Then you have to identify where is the handle of the drill. Um, and these these are very much vision aspects of, of it. So so initially you've got to be able to see so typically what you would do is you create some sort of point cloud So you'd use a a laser scanner or an RGB camera to give you a depth map of what was actually going on. So it just allows you to see. It's seeing. It's the robot's way of seeing. Um, And then what you you want to do is, with many objects, what they talk about is what what, what we term affordances. Whenever you see something with a handle, even if you've never seen it before, you know that the handle is probably the place you should put your hand because... Most handles so are good things. So the handle has an affordance. Um you design things in a particular way because you think that will encourage people to do it. So a drill has a part that looks like you should grasp and it has a part that you look, looks like you probably shouldn't grasp. So you have to identify the part where you, you grasp. That's identifying the affordance. You then send the visual commands to the robot, to the to the robot arm. But what you've got to remember is that it's all about coordinates. So you have world coordinates. So The object is on the desk at a particular point. The robot's head is at a particular point, and the robot's hand is at a different point. So in sports, we quite often talk about hand-eye coordination. So this is hand-eye coordination for the robots, but robots... Typically, we, we we still you know we're still in that, that learning phase of getting hand-eye coordination between the robots, and we're getting pretty good at it now. But it is a hand-eye coordination. So when I reach out to grasp the drill, I, I have to make sure the robot doesn't punch the table along the way. Yeah, yeah. It's got to make no oh,
0: And and I had a question. You know, identifying the handle. That seems like a really kind of tough problem. I mean, are you using like a neural network, or how how do you uh, teaching the robot to uh, identify a handle? We
1: we. Don't don't particularly at the minute, but one of the things we're going to do, because one of the things that that the area of deep learning is one of those things that's particularly well suited to um, visual scenarios. Um, And so we are looking at, starting to look at the use of using deep learning techniques in the vision side of the robots. Um, So how could we take uh, aspects and be able to learn that and teach the robot? So the robot itself, the manipulation, we wouldn't wouldn't use that type of, of learning system probably there. But to actually identify the objects in the first place, yeah, certain, okay. certainly we would use it at that particular point. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and then you, you you drive the robot. One of the, the difficult points you have with most robots is, uh, I, when I did my undergraduate work many years ago. I worked on tactile sensors. There are still almost no tactile tactile sensors in existence. Um, robots really don't touch very well, and it's a it's a major constraint. Um, if you try to touch something, if your hands are anaesthetized and you can't feel your fingertips, humans will drop everything. And yet we expect robots to be able to pick everything up um, without any sense of touch. It's a it's a it's a continuing problem that's been around since I was an undergraduate, and it's still around. Um, and there's still no there's no office shelf solution. You can't go out and buy really good quality tactile sensors that are suited to the environment. You can't buy tactile sensors, but they don't they don't give you what you really need in terms of comparison with, with the human hand. Um, so you make the touch and and then you manipulate the object. So it's it's it, it, the information from the vision system drives the arms of the robot.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And and how when there's an error or you know when they're when they're not correct, how does that uh, how do you go back and update the model? How does the robot kind of update its? Model so that the uh, it improves the next time. Or what are you measuring? Are you measuring like how many you know millimeters are they are they off or yeah uh,
1: yeah it, it, again depends on sorry in the pancake flicking scenario as I say it wasn't a real pancake it was a yeah. it was a piece <laughs> of cardboard um, and what we actually did is we we tracked the, the corners of the pancake so as the pancake moved through the air we could actually measure it rotate. And when it came back there, so it was easy to measure the, the actual pan, the because that's just on the end of the of the robot, so you know exactly where that is by just by the the angle of the kinematics of the robot. But the actual pancake while it's flipping through the air, you have to track it, and so what you actually do is you do this system to actually track the corners, and it then lands. And when it lands, you go ah, it landed flat because you could track it during that bit. And if, a, if you actually tell well, if, if it was a good uh, uh, flip, you tell the robot and next time it would modify very little because it got everything almost perfect. If on the other hand, the pancake didn't go out of the pan at all or it flipped and it landed on the floor, it would make much larger modifications. So it might it might move faster. It might use a different trajectory. It might use because we can actually use the compliance. So it, it might have its wrist very uh, soft at one point and then very rigid at another point. And so you change all these characteristics in an attempt to get to to a particular point. Um, in another scenario, we had we were teaching a robot how to walk. So we programmed the robot how to walk, and the robot would walk fine. We wanted to to make it walk more energetically, efficiently. So use use So we just started it, um, and it just walked. And it, each time it did, it varied signals going to one of the motors or several of the motors simultaneously. And at the end of about 100 150 trials it walked nearly 20% more efficiently. But what you actually felt was it started swinging its hips from side to side. You can see it in the video. (laughs) The hip, hip, yeah, it wasn't programmed. It wasn't programmed to swim its hips. But what you actually say, you see this really rhythmic swing from side to side because the algorithm worked out that it was, so there was no, no conscious thought about doing this. It just is to get a more rhythmic motion is is more efficient. In, in that particular when we put that scenario in, it just ended up and you end up with this very musical it 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 really looks very musical, very musical motion um of of this thing and it looks like it's keeping time to the music and clicking you can almost see it clicking its fingers as it walks.
0: So how, how do you fingers, but it That's yeah exactly that that's amazing. So with the algorithm, like how do you developed algorithm to kind of include that flexibility I don't know where I'd start with that <laughs> or like
1: uh, well there's, there's, a, there's a there's a lot of very well-known in, in artificial intelligence there's a lot of very well-known algorithms um and so you really you just you started from a, a perspective where where this is this is maybe no one already what's not been done if it hasn't been applied in this particular scenario um, and then you maybe modify things. Sometimes we would do things where um, what you would do is time may not be an important characteristic, or time might be an important characteristic. So you would add extra details into the actual algorithm. But you start off typically from two or three algorithms, and then you work from there. Now there there are people out working on algorithmic development, new algorithms. We don't we don't particularly do that because we are not from machine learning. We are not oh, um, yeah, yeah. AI people. We're roboticists. So we we try to stay right at the cutting edge, but at the same time, we want to apply it to the robot. It's not just about a machine learning something, it's about then what the machine learns, applying it to the robot. So we, we're not right on the crest of the wave. We try to be as close behind the crest as possible. <laughs> so, we're not. We're not uh, we wouldn't really develop the new algorithms. Um, that's that's for the the dedicated AI machine yeah. learning people.
0: No, that makes sense. And and we're uh, no. And uh, we're we're almost out of time, unfortunately. But I, you know, before uh, we left, I'm I'm curious what you. And this is a broad question, but you know, what's the future of let's say humanoids? Since we've been talking about that, um, as uh, as I said uh, in uh, one of my questions or. That I sent you, you know, will we ever have a robot who can like cook and clean in the house? And how? I mean, that's just such a a sci-fi kind of vision, but uh, it yeah, seems like, it's a yeah. Long, it seems like it's a long ways off. And uh, just, but I just wanted to get your thoughts um, on. That. Yeah.
1: Oh, the, the 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 bigger question is whether we want a humanoid to do that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, yeah because we sort of assume that we want a humanoid because. Um, that's the way we as humans actually do it. But if you look at your washing machine, which cleans your clothes, your washing machine does not clean your clothes the same way people did 100 years ago where they went out and they went down to a river or whatever and they've <laughs> So we don't have to solve the problem in the same way. But that being said, yeah, in 30 years' time, there's absolutely no reason why we... I, I, most advanced technologies... Take between 25 and 40 years to go from initial um, idea being demonstrated to being something commercial. So, if you think of things like um, like the television, I think the first time the television was demonstrated was in the mid 1920s, and the television essentially became something that was in people's homes in the mid- in the 1950s. Mm. Um, there were there were some in the 1940s, but essentially it was a 1950s uh, type of development. And you can see that there's many different types of technology, from the initial idea of being proven to it actually coming onto the market can be about, um, 30 years, typically 30 years. So I said right at the start, with first, one of the first things we did with robotics was virtual reality. And in virtual reality, headsets were really common. Um, and really expensive. I mean, I remember having headsets that were 20, 30, $50,000. Wow. Um, wow. and now, and now, you see that they're integrated into, into phones. And you see that in the last couple of years, people are now getting headsets and they use their, their mobile phones and they're doing what people in the 1990s were actually doing as cutting-edge research. Mm. And that's, you know, that's 10, 20, uh, 20, 25 years, 25, 30 years from somebody actually demonstrating it until it becomes a, a commercial product. Not a commercial product that I could buy as a researcher, a commercial product that can be bought By the general public. So there's a, so you can buy products, but that doesn't mean if you are bought by, you know, half a dozen people in some labs around the world, that doesn't make it a commercial product. Um, it's whenever it's being bought by thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. Humanoid robots were probably first in first shown with the Honda robot in the late 1990s. Um, so let's say 2000. And if you take 30 years on from there, uh, 2030. So I, I, would say you will start to see possibly humanoid robots somewhere between 2025 and 2040. Interesting. Um, uh, so it, it's still 15, 15, 20 years away. Um, but I don't see any reason why why it won't. Um, it's, it's just a case of you know people often say, but what about the price? Um, and yeah, we're in Italy, so I'd say well, our, fun, our cars, our, our robots when we build them. I like um, a Ferrari Formula (laughs) 1 car. Uh, They're very, very expensive to build, and we only build one or two. Eventually, what you get is a a Ferrari road car. And a Ferrari road car is still very expensive, but there are now thousands of them. And eventually, what you get is a Fiat, and then there are millions of them. Hmm. And they all do the same thing. They take you from point A to point B, and they do approximately the same thing. But what you do is you take some of the technology out, and you add some additional technology in. So the, the Fiat has a different requirement from the Formula One car. But you can see that they are very similar things. Um, so people often say, humanized robots will be too expensive. If you decide to build in, in the right sort of volumes, um, there's no reason why the, why the prices can't be reasonable enough that people actually could quite easily put them into their house. But whether they would do them for cooking and cleaning, or whether they have similar dedicated device, um, Autonomous cars. Autonomous cars will not have a humanoid robot sitting in the driver's <laughs> seat driving, Good like. A kid. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's that's the thing with that. It you, you you don't have a chauffeur, you have a car that drives, but you don't actually physically have a humanoid sitting in there. Um, which is what people would sort of say. Oh well, if I've got a humanoid, it should drive me.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And right, you, and the, of course, like the Roomba, or if you want to cook, maybe there's a. Maybe it's not a humanoid, but there's some type of robot that can help cook up uh, whatever you want. That's dedicated just exactly. that. Yeah, test. Exactly. It,
1: it's built into your kitchen, so yeah. what you have is an intelligent.
0: People. Yep, that makes sense. Okay. Well, I think that's an excellent way to end this interview. That was great. Uh, the whole interview and hearing about your thoughts on the future and the, the present for robotics. So, you've got a lot of experience. So, definitely appreciate your time and thoughts, uh, Darwin.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for the questions.
0: Definitely. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to a, another episode of Flyer Labs. As always, I greatly appreciate it, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye, Darwin.